0: It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Yehuda Geberer with Jewish History Soundbites, and this uh, double or triple episode on uh, Mike Tress, the life and times of this legendary uh, activist, is dedicated by his family, Rabbi Eli Melech, also known as Mike Tress, and his wife Hinda. And uh, in, on that note, I want to thank the various family members for graciously sharing information. They gave of their time to share anecdotes, memories inside the sons of Mike Tress, Uh, who gave of their time, who shared their memories, their perspectives and stories. Uh, Another relative of of the family, Yassel Heisman, who's in general a Jewish history legend. And a special, special thank you to David Rydell, who's a grandchild of Mike Tress, who uh, runs the family archives, and he shared so much uh, correspondence and documents and He's the uh, resident historian and archivist of the family of Mike Tress, and he has done invaluable research in this regard um, and so I want to thank him for just giving again so much of his time and sh- sharing so much of that what I'm going to be speaking about today comes from him and and uh, and Mike Tress's sons and the family for for um <clears throat> for t- making this episode happen. the special episode happen. so special note. Uh, to the amazing work of the Kleinman Holocaust Education Center for all the work they're doing for Holocaust education and research, important and valuable work. Uh, This is a two-part, maybe Uh, (laughs) three-part. We'll see. Officially, officially we'll try to get it in two. If we don't have to run out of time, we'll, we'll just do a third part. There's a lot to say. But it's a mini-series on Mike Tress, and it is episode numbers 299 and 300 of Jewish History Soundbites. So it's a very special occasion. Part one right now is 299, part two, which is going to be later this week, is number 300, which is quite a milestone, if I might say so myself. So I'm going to take the opportunity to take stock of what has been accomplished starting off. This podcast was almost an afterthought to try to you know, generate interest in trips and in Jewish history, and it literally has taken on a life of its own and become a movement which is generated by the listeners and the active participants involved in Jewish history soundbites. And when you study history enough, you learn to never never take anything for granted. So Jewish history soundbites as a phenomenon should not be taken for granted either. The consistency that we keep on having more episodes and new material, new perspectives, new sources that there's always it's always growing in numbers of listeners and all that and that's really um you know quite an accomplishment and not to be taken for granted and that's really all thanks to you all for making it happen and of course a thank you to the dedicated and professional production staff for their constant work, friendship and professionalism but like I said a special thank you to the listeners for listening you're the ones who make Jewish History Soundbites into the community that it is, and it keeps me going as well to keep on producing. And I especially appreciate all the feedback. It's always great to hear from listeners and met some great people along the way, some very nice people, very nice feedback. It's always heartwarming, and keeps me going. And also the critique, the corrections. It keeps me on my toes. We have an educated, well-read, and knowledgeable group of listeners out there, and you have made sure that Jewish History Soundbites keeps the standards of accuracy and objectivity uh, that uh, that we stand for here. So thank you for that. And it exposes me to new sources. You've pointed me in the right direction. You've even taught me English. So thank you all. Last but not least, our sponsors. And um, at this point, it would not be possible to continue the project of Jewish History Soundbites without episode sponsors. And many of you have stepped up to sponsor episodes, even series, like here, um the the uh, Tress, uh, uh members of the Tress family have have uh, taken up to sponsor this mini series um, so then many of you have done things like that partial sponsorships also have been received and that's amazing amazing and very much appreciated It keeps Jewish history Soundbites going strong and has generated some interesting topics and content as well those who have advertised their businesses or projects on Jewish history sound bites have seen productive and tangible results. We have a great target audience here and all of you business owners out there take heed to where you where you may want to invest and sponsor an episode in the future. And any other potential sponsors out there, we'd love to have everyone on board to ensure that Jewish History Soundbites continues to grow and flourish, providing the best Jewish history content out there. So you can uh, be in touch with me about sponsorships. The story now of Mike Tres will be a two-part mini-series, perhaps three if need be. And uh, we have lots of material, so we might need three to get to it all. But I propose that it can perhaps also be a launch for an extended series on great Jewish leaders, askanim, activists, etc. Uh, there are many out there, and their stories can be told with their respective contributions on the stage of Jewish history. So I welcome listeners who would like to have subsequent episodes profiling other leaders to be in touch with me about sponsoring uh, those episodes. You can arrange that with me or any other uh, sponsorship opportunity. So we approach the story of the life and times of Mike Tress and the context of where this incredible uh, leader emerged and the accomplishments that he did and the impact that he had on American Orthodoxy. He's literally one of the great architects of uh, of American Orthodoxy. There's a great biography out there by Jonathan Rosenblum... uh, Fantastic biography, they called him Mike, very long, thorough, did a well treatment of it, uh, nearly three decades following his passing. So it was a very impressive work, much more, but it's also written almost 30 years ago. Um, so it's, uh, it's much more has come to light since then. I think that the biography needs a remake, like, like like good movies, you know, Gone with the Wind, Ben-Hur. No one's watching the original ones, even though Ben-Hur was the first uh, movie to be shot ...in the state of Israel, and the remake was shot in Wazarzat in Morocco, Um, and uh, I saw the set actually when I was in Morocco recently, so everyone wants to watch the remake, and it introduces it to another generation, so I think this biography is in need of a remake as well, that would be very, very effective... Uh, subsequently, f- publishing following the uh, publication of the biography, there's been all kinds of articles and video documentaries have sprung up. Some focusing on his rescue work, others on his uh, building of a gooder israel of America. Still others on his personal biography, his life. Um, there's an audio of a speech of his that has, has uh, parts of it have, have become available. There was a great Yated article, Yatet Neiman article, several years ago with rich memories from all his sons. Um, I will liberally cite from those interviews as well. There are other articles too. Um, he was someone who accomplished so much, and there's so much to say, who had a tremendous impact on American Jewish life. The esteem that he was held by his peers and by the great Torah leaders of the day. And keep in mind, this was a clean-shaven fellow. He was not a rabbi. He was English-speaking, American-born, a businessman and possibly the greatest builder of Yiddishkeit that the United States Orthodox community has ever known. And unique in the annals of public advocacy, activism and leadership in several ways, which I will elaborate on. And there are three components of his story. There's his biography itself. There's his uh, building of Agudis Yisrael, Tzireh Agudis Yisrael. And then there's his rescue work during the, the years leading up to uh, the war, and then during the Holocaust, and then in the aftermath, uh, post-liberation. Um, so those are really three stories, or three components. And I'd like to approach it that in that order. I'd like to first focus on his biography, then on the Gdansk and then his rescue work. I'm assuming that the rescue work is only we're only going to get to in part two. Um, so let's see how far we get and how much we accomplish now in part one, and we'll pick it up from wherever we leave off. Uh, wherever we get to, will be released later this week, so you don't have to wait that long, just another day or two. We'll uh, release the second part, and we'll uh, continue with the story from wherever we leave off. So he's someone who did not live very long. He was um, he, uh, born in 1909, and he passes away, unfortunately, at quite a young age, 56, 57, in the year 1967. He's orphaned from his father, Gershon uh, Tress, when he was a baby, one or two years old, and he's raised by his mother, uh, Hanya, uh and his aunt, uh, who was later the Agodiz the president of Israel Yisrael, Ramos uh, mother. mother. Um, his parents, uh, were, Mike Tres's parents, were immigrants from Ukraine, and he himself was born in New York City. Um, his mother served as the president of the ladies' Jewelry of of the Stoliner based merchant in Williamsburg. It was a very religious family. They came from Stoliner Hasidim, and they were closely affiliated with uh, with the religious life, with Stoliner life that was emerging in New York at the time. Um, but Mike Tress, he was known as Mike. His name was Eli Melech He He's always known as Mike. In fact. Uh, towards the end of his life when he's already the you know ready and Israel was a force to be reckoned with and was a big organization and much more formal than in the Haimish early days so he was introduced at an Aguda dinner um, with all the you know appropriate introduction that a president of a major Jewish organization would be introduced and when he gets to the microphone he says um, I appreciate all the introductions but you can just call me Mike uh, you know and he as a throwback to those early days when it was you know much more uh, 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 you know, uh, Haimish. I'm trying, I'm trying to think of the best translation. I don't think there is a good translation for Haimish. Um, uh, and he was always Mike. He was a, you know Mike Truss. So um, he subsequently would enjoy a very close personal relationship with all the great Torah leaders across the religious and political spe- spectrum, irrespective of background or religious or political affiliation. Um so. The fact that he came from a specific Hasidic dynasty and religious background did not uh, have an effect on who he would associate with later on. He literally associated with everyone. He himself attended public school. He did never attended a yeshiva. There weren't really that many yeshivas around in, in, in Williamsburg in those days. And then he was college educated. He, went, uh, he got uh, he went to went to school, got a degree, and then he entered the business world. He was a very successful business. He was a brilliant individual and very driven, very motivated, a very hard worker. Um, So he became very successful. He was very wealthy. By all accounts, he had a tremendous amount of charisma, a magnetic personality. People were very drawn to him and were in awe of him, people who speak about him. He seems like one of those rare personalities as a human being, as a person. A very rare personality that just had a lot of, uh, um, you know, magnetic, very charismatic. Um, In fact, um, um, there's so, so who was, I think, Rav Shagofago Mendelovitch, who, of course, he, uh, they, were, they, were, they were closely associated as well. So he once referred to him as, uh, as there's, there's, there's people who are great Talmidei Chachamim, great Torah scholars, Torah leaders. And then there's someone who's a Gadol Hadar. Now today, when we refer, we use the term, we throw it around a lot. And there's always a big dispute who is and who isn't. The term Gadol Hadar, the greatest one of the generation. And we're almost always referring to a great Torah scholar, a leading tzaddik, a leading Torah scholar. Uh, And yet, uh, Rav Shagafaivel said, the Gadol Hadar just means the great one of the generation. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's referencing a big rabbi. And he said, a Gadol Hadar just could mean someone who's incredibly great, and an amazing leader, who has such an impact on Yiddishkeit and on Jewish life and in leadership. And he said, so the Gadol Hadar in our generation, he was referring to his own, is Mike Tress, because he's the great one of the generation, despite the fact that he's not the big Rosh Hashiva or the big Hasidic Rabbi. Um, He devoted his life to the ideal that he believed in, and to, in order to do so, he retired from his successful business, and then he liquidated all of his assets, which is something, a theme I'm going to return to with, in more detail as we go along. He was completely devoted to the cause. Um, and uh, he... Um, he a turning point in his life was the visit of Rebel and Vaserman, the Baranovich Rosh Yeshiva who came to the United States to fundraise for his Yeshiva in Baranovich. And he stayed for about, close to a year and a half in 1938, 39, and then thirty seven, And he was, Mike Tres was captivated by He He It was a transformative experience. He maintained the correspondence with him subsequently. And uh, Rebel Khan is the one who urged him to abandon his business and devote his life to communal work and the parting words when Rabbi Chanan returned to Europe to return to his yeshiva in 1939 so the parting words uh, that he had to Mike Tress was the future of Torah or the future of Yiddishkeit in the United States is in your hands and he literally gave him this mission Um, and and this this Rabbi Chanan has changed his life he he, he devoted himself to claw work, he sold his business off as a result and his this uh, had a decisive impact. He carried a letter of Rabbi khanan uh, with him, uh, folded in his wallet for the rest of his life. He carried it with him—a letter that Rabul Khanan had had written uh, to him. He um, uh, Mike Tress uh, brought uh, in 1941 when Rabbi Cutler arrived as a refugee in the United States. So, so um, one of the few people who greeted Rabbi in 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 uh, Manhattan's. Penn Station, uh, Grand Central Station, Penn Station. Who knows? And uh, uh, in April 1941, to greet and Cutler was Mike Tress with a group of Tziere Agudas Yisrael followers. Uh, they were from the few who appreciated uh, who Rabaran was and and who decided to go out and greet him. There was also a delegation of the Agudas Haranim, of course, and and Mike Tress. In other words, he he has this theme and this understanding of who, who, what's central. Uh, to, to the Orthodox identity that he's trying to build, and he wanted his young charges to see that right away. In his business, he'd hire Jewish girls so that they wouldn't have to work on Shabbos. Um, he, and, then, and then when he still had a business, like I said, he sold his business, he, he he used his up his own savings, a lot of savings, and he had a stock investment porf- portfolio, he sold off all his stock, he sold off all his investments, he then went ahead and mortgaged his home three times, all for the greater good of the community. So he, his his biography and his public work became one at some point in his life because he no longer had any of anything of his own. He was completely devoted to the community. Um, and the, the interesting you point out is that we're focusing on his biography aspect here, the challenge of his growing up himself. In other words, we talk so much about how he impacted the growth of orthodoxy in America, what about his own upbringing? How did he himself stay Orthodox? Uh, he's an orphan, uh, growing up in the United States in the 1910s and 20s. Um, it's 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 a, a, almost astounding that he himself remained Orthodox. He went to public school. He was raised by a single mother, and he goes to college and goes into business, and yet he stays religious. He doesn't work on Shabbos. Right? So just the fact that he himself was able to overcome those challenges in his own life and remain devoted to to uh, Orthodox Judaism is enough uh, a story itself. He gets married in about June 1939. Um, he, he and his wife is marrying a successful businessman. And then they gave it all up with a growing family. Every year another child is born. He eventually has 11 children, four boys, seven girls. Um, and there's Excuse me, no more financial security. He's constantly traveling, constantly away from home. So it's very much a tribute to her, Hindetress, his wife, Mrs. Hindetress, that she enabled him to do that. She was, you know, it was absolutely amazing what she was able to do. Um, she at one point had five children under the age of five at home. And when she was asked how did she do it, she said, you just did what you had to do because she recognized and believed in what her husband was doing. She looked up to him and was amazed and recognized the importance of it. So she went ahead and allowed him to do it. And not just allowed, she enabled him to be able to go and carry that out. Um, And he didn't get any uh, covet or thank yous from it, only grief and more grief because it was a different world of public activism at the time. Uh, It wasn't a place where he got many thank yous. But uh, he spent his life devoted to the Jewish people. In most public activists, Jews uh, in any any community, they kept a business on keep kept and keep a business on the side. They have their own life. They have their own income, um, or they draw an income, a salary from whatever organization they're running. He might be the only, one of the only. I don't want to say only one of the only Askanim uh, you know, leaders activists who completely gave everything away. So much so that towards the end of his life, when he had open-heart surgery, the Kapishnitzereba, who he was very close with, had to pay the $3,000 for him to be able to get to Texas for this experimental open-heart surgery as, as a loan. One of his one of Mike Tress's daughters saw in the newspaper once that a business that he had previously been a partner in was sold for $3 million in the 1960s. Uh, so the daughter said... Uh, Wow, how different things could have been had you remained a partner in the business. So he responded, Thank God that things turned out differently. Look how much we were able to accomplish. Um, Rebel Hanan Wasserman had sent him a letter when he was a chassan, when he was a groom, ready to get married, with a typical blessing on the eve of a marriage. And then right after that, he speaks about the projects on Bran of Yeshiva, and we need to raise money, and he runs right into it in that same letter. In other words, they recognized him as someone who's never sitting on his uh, laurels. He's always running and moving and working towards the next project. And that's the letter actually that he kept folded in as well for the rest of his life. Um, he was in awe of all Gedele Yisrael, all great Torah leaders, even when he didn't know them, even when he was only people he had heard about. And he was even able to inspire others of the next generation to look up to them as well as if he had himself known them. The last eight years of his life, he suffered from heart disease. He had a heart attack when he was 49, so he was semi-retired after that. He he passes away quite young, like I said, so in the 1960s, he was already not really involved, less, he was less involved in a good He's his already weaker. So that makes it even more incredible, because the entire Mike Tress story is only 20 plus years. Um, that's the whole thing, that's the whole story we're talking about um and uh, even before that again in his personal life he was engaged his engagement was for, was for close for, close to two-year engagement why because his mother was sick and he wanted to take care of his mother um so he asked his bride if they can push off the engagement until he you know till she gets better unfortunately she did not get better she died but they only got married afterwards he's married at the age of 28 29. Um, in his in his home, he was a devoted father. Every Friday, he would buy new dresses for his seven daughters, new for Shabbos, something new every Shabbos. And at the Shabbos table, table he would he would make sure to uh, serve some of the courses in the meal, because his wife worked hard all week and he was very often away and not around. So he wanted to he's he's serving, he's clearing the table at least for some of the courses. He's there and and at the at the at the Shabbos table, and this is. Later on in life, there was um, it was no no money in the house, and they struggled financially. But yet still, as a devoted father and husband, he was the uh, you know he made it made it a warm and loving house to be in. Um, so he would go every week, once a week on every Sunday, he would go to Torah where his sons studied, and he would speak to every rebbe of all his children, as a, a he knew he. He, he had there was a PTA every Sunday for his kids, unlike other parents who were probably not nearly as busy as he was, who came once or twice a year for the PTA. He was there once a week, um, and he would try to take his children on trips, on excursions, uh, it took them out to Staten Island, going by the subway and the, the ferry and then a bus from the ferry to the park where they would go and, uh, and play for a whole day in the park, rowing on the lake um, again, just to be a, as much as he could, as much as his busy schedule allowed it, to be a father. He was the CEO of a big textile company, the Lam- Lampert Brothers, when he was still in business, and he was able to secure many jobs for um, for Jewish girls who, who to be able to not work on Shabbos. He was also later on a partner in the Esquire shoe polish company, which was that was the one that was later sold for millions of dollars. But well, the reason he left that company was because his partner refused to close on Shabbos. Um, so he, uh, that, that, that's something that he willingly uh, gave up. Um, he, when one of his projects, which we'll talk about when we talk about Agudis Yisrael, was the Camp Aguda, And they bought their campus in the Catskills, and the bank wanted collateral. So he was negotiating the deal and he had already given everything away. He was already broke at that point. The only thing that he had left was a life insurance, his own life insurance policy. And the bank accepted that as collateral. So later on, the Aguda defaulted and was not able to make the payment on the mortgage of their campus. So the bank cashed in on his life insurance policy. So he was, when he passed away, it was empty, literally nothing. His his wife Hinda had to go out and get a job right after the Shiva was over just to be able to make sure there was food on the table. Um, another memory that, that a child shared of, 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 of the home was, um, was that there, he accept, you know, always had guests in the house. And it was all types of people, it didn't make a difference who they were. They were a Jew in need, they found a place at the table, it didn't matter what they looked like, what their background was, it made no difference. Um, and he said uh, someone who was not refined at all um, was eating there at their house very repulsively. He spit half of his food back onto the, onto the plate. And one of Mike Tress's children made a face. And he looks at him and he s- asks him to leave the room. And he says, do you know who this Jew is? Do you know what he went through? How can you make a face at him? And that's again part of the education. Uh, that he had to his children. So we move into the story of his uh, building a Yisrael of America. And he's not the one who founded Tzirei, the young, young uh, which, which is the organization that he's become associated with. Um, the young members of a Agudas Israel of America. That credit goes to another group of visionary young men. It was for young working guys who were mostly, who had not attended yeshiva. They got together in the evenings. It was very social. There was shiurim. There were classes. It was early dafyaimi. Uh, shiurim actually they had Shalashudah's get together as Malava Malka, It was kind of like an Orthodox social fraternity. What Mike Tress did was join this nascent federation of social clubs and give it organization. He gave it passion. He gave it a vision and, most of all, a sense of mission. And this goaded it to accomplishments until it truly became a movement. Bear in mind that the Young Israel movement and other Orthodox uh, movement organizations are in its early stages and young Israel, for instance, seemed to be catering to the very same demographic and were accomplishing great strides in orthodoxy in doing so. There was even some overlap with uh, uh, Tzirei Hagodes Yisrael as, as uh, for example, the young Israel of New Lots in, in out in Brooklyn, story attests, uh, Mayor Birnbaum, the famous Lieutenant Birnbaum, describes how his young Israel of New Lots was almost like a branch of Tzirei Hagodes Yisrael at the same time. Yet Mike uh, believed that Hagodes Yisrael and Tzirei, Pirche Benos, had a unique mission and in the only known audio recording of Mike Tress, it was a speech at a Pirkei dinner honoring Josh Silbermans, the head of Pirkei, Mr. Pirche, um, in 1956, 57, shortly following his return from Vienna after the Hungarian Revolution. He speaks with a passion about the meaning of a good Israel to him and its mission, galvanizing his audience to join him on this mission. And he speaks about his awe of the great Torah leaders of a good Israel. speaks about them with such pathos. Most of them are people who he had never even met. And yet he describes his... He, to describe them and, and and with this you know shouting this passion this charisma you know like dynamite and he describes his attending the fourth Kinesia, uh of Agudah Yisrael in Yerushalayim in 1954 two years earlier and his meeting the gererab of the Beis Yisrael he talks about the contemporary Torah leaders in the United States who were then currently at the helm of the Agudah in America and he uh, you know explains his, his mission. Uh, it was such a strong mission in his mind that he founds Camp Aguda even though it was during the war. Even though he was completely devoted to rescue activity and fundraising for rescue activity, he founds Camp Aguda because he believed in the mission. Because he saw, and this is a this fascinating uh, um, his, piece of history, the way he saw Aguda, is that he kind of saw it as almost like, I guess if we would put it in contemporary terms, a of organization. It was outreach. Uh, to encourage orthodoxy. Um, and this is unique to the fact that it was the United States and unique to the fact that it was Tz'irei Aguriz Yisrael of America, not Aguriz Yisrael of America. It was a very unique niche that he captured here. Um, in Europe, Aguriz uh, Yisrael in Europe, in Germany, and Pol- especially in Poland, and then later in the State of Israel, Aguriz Yisrael was a political machine. It was an orthodox political machine. It was an orthodox political party. And it was an orthodox political party out to promote Yiddishkeit and build Yiddishkeit, uh, uh, Orthodox Judaism. But it was a political party. And the Good Israel America was built very differently because of Mike Tress, because T'Ira becomes the dominant force of the Israel America. Good Israel America as an adult organization only comes much later. Um, it was they planted the seeds earlier already from the ni- early 1920s, but it was only picked up by a blaze of Silver. In the late 1930s, and then even more so when Mike Tress joins the Agudah of America in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, but in the beginning, the dominant Agudah of America is sire and it's Mike Tress, and and it's and it's a key organization. It's 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 to promote orthodoxy. It's, it's Shmiras Shabbos campaigns. It's 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 Camp Agudah to get public school kids to experience Yiddishkeit and try to encourage them to attend yeshiva. It was. The idea, of it, and only later it reaches the national stage. Tzirei he, Godes he, Stroll tries to support upstart yeshivas, girls' schools, the early base Yaakovs. Pirchei and Benos becomes the main vehicles of his activity in gatherings and trips. Uh, they go on summer trips and weekends and, and social gatherings with Avamalkas. He ran the Pirchei and Tzirei meetings almost every night of the week. Different chapters in different parts of New York and members in each place, and he continued to do so even during the war years when he was deeply involved in rescue work. He believed that the key to building orthodoxy was from the youth up, and he never even bothered targeting middle-aged adults. He focused completely on the youth. Malava Malkas were the big big thing at the time, and he would attend every Malava Malka. He would always speak, very often inspiring his young charges with the same message uh, at the same time. He would speak about very often the same same theme, same message, and it never got stale. He spoke about it with such a passion each time. And uh, like I said, uh, even, even it was beyond Aguriz Israel, like the story of the young Israel of New Lots and the way that Meyer Birnbaum speaks about it, and that Meg Tress would come and inspire them as well, even though they're not officially a chapter of Aguriz Israel. The uh, headquarters of Tziriyah Aguriz Israel was at 616 Bedford Avenue in Williamsburg. And that became the center of his activity. That's where his office was. He eventually, it's a place, it's a place that houses refugees. And it's a place that he even has, when he invites uh, Mr. Joseph Rosenberger, who's the pioneer of Shatnes in the United States, to open his first Shatnes lab. And where is he going to do it? At 616 Bedford Avenue in good Israel headquarters. And that's where the Shatnes lab is housed for many years. So he's a... Very charismatic personality, very dynamic. People who revert him youth, donors, adults, Russia yeshiva, tzaddikim, simple people. And this lays the foundations for Yiddishkeit in America. That was his Aguda work. So fundamentally, it was fundamentally different than the European and later the Israeli Aguda. It was not a political organization, uh, it was a Yiddishkeit organization to build Yiddishkeit. It was very important. It's very important to understand his role in that difference from the other Agudas because it may have had the same name, but it was very different in nature as a result. And then, of course, there's post war Aguda work continuing uh, Camp Agoda, um, He belonged to all of the Jewish people. He was respected across the spectrum, even way outside the borders of Hagodah Yisrael, by Hasidic leaders, Russian Yeshiva, Lithuanian leaders, Yakis, uh, Zionists, uh, on the right and the left, even outside of Agoda, because he, he was there for a, a, a cause, a goal, food and sleep and materialism, and all this meant nothing to him. He was singly focused on helping people. And he lived to help people. And then and it wasn't politically uh, motivated. So um even said that the reason he had passed away at such a young age is because everyone's pain was his pain. And that gave him his heart condition. So that's what slowed him down, uh, like I said, uh, uh, um, uh, several years before his passing. Um, so he... Um, I think... Um, and here we're pretty much wrapping up the Aguda stage of his life. So we'll head on with the rescue activity... In part two, it's the major story of his life, major theme of his uh, his career and activism. We'll focus more on his rescue work and wrap up some loose ends from his biography and a work as well. And if we need, we have no problem going into a part three uh, also. So this is Yehuda Geber the Jewish History Soundbites with part one of Mike Tress, part two to come soon. You can reach me at Yehuda at for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean uh, or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at SoundBites, and I hope you enjoyed.